Today's scripture is from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For there was glory in the ministry of condemnation. The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory had come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpassed it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more what is much excuse me, much more what is much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ it is taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is God's word. I invite you to keep your Bibles open to the book of 2 Corinthians as we pray together this morning. God, I am grateful today for the opportunity to gather alongside brothers and sisters, even despite weather uh, that made it a little bit harder for us to get here today. I pray, Lord, uh, that you would be with us, that you would be at work in our midst to draw us close to you to thrill our hearts with the hope of the gospel, and to remind us that this is your work of your grace to draw us to new life so that we would rejoice in the glory that is revealed there. Lord, we, we pray these things as we open the book of 2 Corinthians together in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, for the better part of three years, my seventh, eighth, and ninth grade years of school growing up, I had my first job. Seven days a week, every single week, I had to be out of bed and on my way to work at 3.30 a.m. Well, my alarm would go off, I would stumble out of bed, strap on my rollerblades, and head out into the dark to deliver the local newspaper. Rain or shine, I was out there. When it snowed, like today, I had to walk. It was the only job that I could get without a driver's license, and so I did it. And as much as I hated being up that early every day or being out in the rain, I loved it when my paycheck would come in the mail. It made the allowance that I had been getting from my parents look like peanuts. I had more spending money than either of my brothers, which I liked as well. And I remember that I got paid something like $50 a week, which for a 13-year-old felt like a fortune. I could buy Cokes from the vending machines at school. I could take my friends to the movies whenever I wanted. The paycheck was great. But looking back now, as an adult, 
I realize it, it probably was not worth it. Considering I was barely awake for three years of school, uh, I couldn't leave town with my family without conning one of my friends into covering my route for me, and the fact that I later realized I was being paid so little that I feel like I was basically being robbed by my local paper. At some point, I realized that this job was not as great as I thought it was when I was 13. So it would be madness if I were to resign my position as a pastor here at Westgate Church in order to move back to my hometown to be a paperboy again. If I told you this morning that that was my plan, you would be con concerned for me. You would be rightly confused if that's what I decided to do with my life, and perhaps some of you would call me up and ask why in the world I would willingly choose to go back to an old job that is worse in every conceivable way to what I get to do now. This is essentially the point that Paul is making here in this section of 2 Corinthians. Some people there are holding tightly to something that has been replaced by something better, more satisfying, and ultimately more effective. And so his hope for these friends of his in the city of Corinth is that they will let go of what is obsolete and cling to the better hope that they have in Christ. In this section of the letter, Paul is still defending his ministry among the Corinthians. As we've seen in weeks in the past, he's been attacked by rival teachers there who have sought to discredit him, to undermine his effort, and to disparage his reputation. So Paul has set out to answer these other teachers, not for the sake of his reputation or his pride, but because he cares about these people in this city, in this fledgling church, enough to fight for them to hear the truth of the gospel, not a distorted version of it. So far, we've mainly been able to piece together what these other teachers have been saying about Paul himself and about his character. But in this section of the letter that we're picking up today, we get some clues about the doctrine that they're promoting their twisted version of the gospel, and what they want the Corinthians to believe about what it means to know God and to be saved. What we can deduce is that they were teaching a familiar ideology that Paul confronted elsewhere, a pervasive way of thinking in the first century church and indeed throughout all of human history. It is what Paul calls in verse 7 the ministry of death carved in letters on stone. That language that Paul is using there is a reference to the Mosaic Law recorded in the first books of the Old Testament, which God gave to His people Israel to direct their lives and to order their society and to set them apart from the nations which surrounded them. The law instructed the people according to the character and nature of God, forbidding things which are contrary to His heart and commanding things which align with it. In addition to giving instruction for religious practice that was necessary because of the sinfulness of the people. The whole law was necessary for people to have a relationship with a holy God. First, because apart from it, they would not be able to know Him as holy and just. The law reveals that He is holy and just. And second, because through it, through the law, He made a way for His sinful and rebellious people to come near to him in the temple. It was a sign of his gracious care for all of humanity 
that he uttered the words of the law to a people who would, at many points in their history, neglect it or abandon it altogether. Now, though, Christ has come. And in him, the law has been flawlessly kept and perfectly fulfilled. No longer are temple sacrifices necessary to cover the sins of the people because Christ is the once and for all time sacrifice whose blood covers the sin of God's people. No longer are the people of God to be set apart by the foods that they don't eat or the clothes that they wear because God has called to himself people from all tribes and all tongues and all nations to himself in Christ who sets them apart. No longer must the people of God fear his wrath for their transgressions against his very heart because in Christ God's justice has been satisfied and his mercy poured out. In Christ, the law has been transformed from a ladder that we must climb to reach out to God into a song that we sing about His holiness and His justice and His love and His very nature, the very nature of this God who has come to us in Jesus Christ. But for 2,000 years, this concept has been hard for humanity to grasp. In Corinth, it is causing people to stumble in their faith because teachers in the church there are demanding that people continue to submit to the law as followers of Christ. As I've said, it's an ideology that Paul confronted elsewhere, but most directly in his letter to the, to the Galatians. Believers there in that region had been taught that those who proclaimed faith in Christ, who proclaimed faith in, in the salvation that he offered them, were now saying that in addition to faith in Christ, people must also submit to the law in order to be saved. The message that they were hearing and, and sharing with one another was that Jesus plus something else, specifically things like circumcision as commanded in the law, were necessary before God would accept someone's faith. That false gospel got Paul fired up. So he wrote to them, "'You foolish Galatians,' strong language from Paul. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Let me ask you only this. Did you receive by the Spirit, by the works of the law, or by hearing by, with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul is fixated on this detail because the whole gospel and all of eternity and indeed, even the glory of God, as we'll see in today's passage from 2 Corinthians, hang on whether or not we understand it. It is the crucified Son of God that saves by faith alone, nothing else. And that promise is better than anything that the law can accomplish. This true gospel produces two results in the hearts of Christians. The first is a humble and sincere dependence on God. The gospel gives us hearts that long for God to do what we know only God can do. It doesn't harbor any false notions about our ability to do what is right apart from God. And second, it produces an overflowing joy that God would show such kindness to us even when we had set ourselves against Him as His enemies. 
If the Corinthians or any of us fall into thinking that some work of ours is necessary for salvation, some piece of the puzzle that only we can fit into place by summoning our strength and our righteousness, then we rob God of the glory that is rightly His, and we deprive ourselves of the joy of treasuring and savoring that glory. Fighting against this twisted gospel was a a constant battle for Paul in the first century in many of the churches that he cared for. It's like an exhausting, lifelong, high-stakes game of whack-a-mole where this false teaching keeps popping up. The idea that Jesus plus something is what's necessary for salvation, and it pops up in a town like Corinth, and Paul comes along to smack it back down again. That's exactly what's happening here in Corinth. People are being taught that Jesus carries them most of the way to salvation, most of the way to heaven, and that it will be up to them to see it through by their obedience to the law. He gets at this in verse 7 of our passage, referring to the tablets of stone that Moses brought down from the mountain. It's a reference to a particular moment in the Old Testament, recorded in Exodus 34, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone, the heart of God's instruction for his people's conduct. In this passage, Paul is choosing his words very carefully. He's not saying the law is bad or that Christians should disregard what God has revealed in and through the law. He doesn't want anyone to get the impression that he thinks the law is evil or that striving to live in a way that honors God is bad. He's passionate about making sure that people understand that living in a way that honors God, even though that's good, will not save them. But he does not disregard the law. In fact, he says it was delivered from God through Moses with glory. He's referring again to this passage from Exodus 34, the delivery of the Ten Commandments, saying that the Israelites could not even gaze at Moses' face because of the glory that was being revealed when he came with the Ten Commandments in his hands. What he's talking about is that after spending 40 days on the mountain talking with God, Moses came down radiating the glory of God so intensely that the people could not bear to even look at him. It's a memorable moment, of course, but it reveals something significant about the grace of God. Because just two chapters earlier, these people had watched Moses go up on the mountain to meet with God the first time. And after a little while, they began to be afraid that he wasn't going to come back and that they were going to be on their own. They thought that they had been abandoned and that they were going to have to go it alone. So they made themselves a god to worship in the form of a golden calf statue, abandoning their faithfulness to Yahweh. On the heels of their deliverance from slavery in Egypt, having seen God's magnificent displays of His supremacy, they crumble almost immediately into the idolatry prominent among the other nations of the ancient Near East. Moses came down the mountain carrying stone tablets with the Ten Commandments written on them, and he sees the golden calf, and in anger, he smashes the tablets. In that scene, there is no mention of Moses' face shining, radiating the glory of God, or of the people fearing to look at him, even though he is coming against them in righteous indignation. But later, two chapters later, he goes back up on the mountain, meets with God again, gets a new copy of the Ten Commandments, and comes down, and suddenly they cannot bear to look him in the face. It's an interesting turn of events. 
The people had rebelled against God. They had broken the commandments that God had given basically right away, like before they were even delivered. They had set themselves against God, making themselves his enemies. Yet, God did not forsake them in that moment. He did not cast them away. He sent Moses back with new tablets, and when he did, the people could not bear to look at Moses in the face. The law came in glory, and it revealed, as we've said, a glimpse of the holiness of God. And in their sin, which has now been revealed by the law, the people can't even bear to look. In their shame, they can't even bear to see the reflection of God's holiness. Paul knows that the law is the gracious gift of God, and he says in Romans 7 that the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. It was a work of God's mercy to give the law to his people and to the world, and by it to reveal our need for forgiveness. But Paul wants this church in Corinth and all Christians to know that the law can only reveal sin. It cannot put an end to sin. It can only show our need of a Savior. It cannot be our Savior. It is a covenant of works, a ministry of death, Paul says, that cannot make alive what is dead in sin. So in this passage, from 2 Corinthians 3, Paul explains three ways that the new covenant in Christ, the covenant of grace, is a better hope than believing that we must keep the law to be loved by God. First, Paul makes the, a point of the fact that the covenant of grace is lasting. Three times in this passage, he says that the old covenant is being brought to an end. That word for brought to an end appears 27 times in the New Testament, and among those 27 occurrences of this word, it's translated almost 27 different ways. It's translated variously as destroyed, emptied, humbled, nullified, released from obligation, replaced, or as here in this passage, brought to an end. Anytime that you see that, when you're reading your Bible in English and you see a word that is translated in so many different ways, right? I mean, I realize that can be hard to notice, but if you're using a concordance or something and you're saying, well, this word in this passage is translated this way in English, and over here it's this way, and we have five or six different ways the word is translated, that's a sign to us. We don't really have an equivalent word in English. It captures everything that this original word, in this case in Greek, conveyed. But if we cram all of those English words together, all of the ways that this word has been translated together, we get a sense for what, what, what is happening here, what Paul is getting at. That God has begun something new. He's put one thing away and begun something new. And if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the law, Paul says, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. God has begun something new and it is better. The old covenant, which demanded perfect obedience, flawless righteousness, and purity of heart, has done what God intended it to do. It has not failed. It has done what God intended it to do. It has revealed that God is holy, that no person is without sin, and no one is able to free themselves from it. Its effect was illustrated, as we've seen in the passage from Exodus 34. Paul is referencing in this passage. The law came, it condemned the sin of the people, and as a result, they wilted in the face of the glory of God, which threatened to crush them. The Old Covenant and its law, the ministry of death, 
as Paul describes it here, they were never meant to provide eternal security, but were meant to point forward to the one who would, and whose ministry would be permanent, eternal, unchanging, and unfading, because it is founded on the very heart of God, which is eternally unchanging. Paul wants the Corinthians to see that clinging to the law for their security is hopeless because it was never meant to save, but to point them to the one who does, in whom the glory of God is not merely a reflection like what the people saw in Moses' face, but is the embodied, incarnate glory of eternity seen most clearly in his sacrificial love for his people. Second, Paul explains that the new covenant is better because it brings people closer to God than the law ever could. It is successful in this regard. As we've seen, when the law was given to the Israelites, the people glimpsed God's glory in Moses so much that Moses' own face was shining because of it. And they were afraid because of it. And though that sounds like something that perhaps ought to have caused them to rejoice, when they do see Moses' face, They cower in fear, like the prophet Isaiah, who, when he beheld the majesty of God in Isaiah 6, did not cry out with joy, as we might have expected, seeing the most glorious, majestic thing that any eye might ever behold. He doesn't say, wow, this is amazing. He says instead, woe is me. In light of the glory of God, he sees his own sinfulness, his own uncleanness more clearly than he ever has before. He realizes in an instant that he is more of a rebel against God than he had ever known before, more of a sinner than he was willing to admit before. But in the presence of God, suddenly, every hidden thing is brought to light. So he assumed in that moment that the judgment of God would sweep him away. The people receiving the law, glimpsing the glory of God in the face of Moses, they do not rejoice, they cower. And they make Moses cover his face because they cannot bear to look at it. So from this point on, Moses begins wearing a veil when he is with the people. Whenever he ascends the mountain to meet with God, he would remove the veil. When he came back down, he would put it on again. Because the people feared what they knew the old covenant would produce. When they looked in the face of Moses and they saw the glory of God, they knew that his judgment was against them because they could suddenly see their sin more clearly than they had before. So they asked for a barrier between themselves and that glory. Now, millennia later, Paul says, that veil remains, dividing the people from the glory of God. To this day, he says in verses 14 and 15, that veil remains because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Among these false teachers in Corinth, the barrier between the people and God remains. But Paul wants them to know that Christ has lifted that veil. In fact, he has destroyed it. Just a few chapters before Moses covered his face with a veil in Exodus 34, we read God's instructions for the construction of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was sort of a portable temple, the place where priests would carry out sacrifices on behalf of the people. It was also the place where the Ark of the Covenant would reside, where the very presence of God would descend to dwell among His people. It was elaborate, the tabernacle, and the instructions that God gave for its 
construction were very detailed, down to the specific materials and dimensions and positioning of all the various pieces that were involved, in addition to specific instructions for moving it and setting it up in a new location. And right there in the middle of all those instructions on the tabernacle and how it's to be built is a section explaining that the very heart of the tabernacle is a specific and special place, and that there's supposed to be a specific place set apart as the most holy place where the ark was to be placed. That space was so holy, where the ark rests and resides is so holy that only the high priest was allowed to enter it, and only once per year in order to make a sacrifice for the atonement of the people. And as God is giving instructions for that holy place, the very heart of the temple, he says this, you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. You shall hang it on four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold with hooks on four bases of silver, and you shall hang the veil on clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate you from the holy place. The people were protected from the holiness of God by the veil that he instructed them to hang, creating a barrier between them and the most holy place where his literal presence would be among them. Later, when the tabernacle was replaced with a massive temple complex under the reign of King Solomon, we read that when he built the most holy place for the ark, he made a veil of blue and purple and crimson fabrics and fine linen to be a barrier separating it from everything else. Jewish tradition reported that the curtain, this veil in the temple, was several layers thick, perhaps as many as four or five inches of material, weighing hundreds and hundreds of pounds, though, of course, this may be an exaggeration. It certainly demonstrates to us the way that that veil was understood by the people. When they thought of the barrier that was there, protecting them from the holiness of God in the most holy place, the people remained separated from God's presence by this barrier that, even if it wasn't five inches thick, may as well have been solid, impenetrable steel. And that veil remained in place, hanging between humanity and God for centuries, until, on Good Friday, it was torn in two from top to bottom. The Gospel writers Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that at the moment of Jesus' death, the veil of the temple was torn down the middle. It was destroyed because under the covenant of grace, it is not the law and our obedience that protects us from God's holiness. It is the sacrificial love of Christ which atones for our sin. By receiving in our place the just wrath of God against our sin so that now there is none left. Christ has paid it all, and all that remains is to be welcomed by Him into the very presence of God, without fear or shame or guilt. So Christians enter into the very presence of God in the name of His Son with assurance, and therefore, Paul says in verse 12, we are very bold. Not arrogant. Paul is clear in his letters, that Christians have nothing to boast about apart from Christ himself. But Christians can come near to God boldly, without any fear, knowing that in Jesus Christ he has declared us innocent. That boldness does not come from a sense of accomplishment on our part, but confidence in the work of Christ, 
to be our Savior, whose death in our place destroyed the barrier that once stood between us and our holy God. And it also makes believers bold in the world, something we see over and over again in Paul's life. His salvation is accomplished, his eternity secure, so he is a courageous advocate of the gospel. Not like Moses, he says, who, even though he was a hero of faith, was only as bold as the covenant that he followed could make him. In Christ, there was a greater boldness rooted in a deeper assurance, the finished work of the cross. It is not dependent on law-keeping because Christ perfectly kept the law. He upheld the holiness of His Father perfectly. And now the righteousness that He demonstrated in His lifetime is counted ours by faith alone. This is the covenant of grace that produces life and makes us free, free from bondage to sin and the ministry of death. It is the gospel that Paul wants the people of Corinth to cling to. Third, Paul explains that this new covenant produces in us what the law never could. He says in verse 18, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, because it was rent in two at the moment of Christ's death, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is one of the most famous verses in the book of 2 Corinthians, and for very good reason. It captures something essential and wonderful about the gospel, that we do not make ourselves into the people that God calls us to be in order for Him to love us. Instead, it is by God's loving work in our lives, by, by welcoming us into His presence to behold His glory, that we are made into the people He calls us to be, people whose lives radiate His glory and the grace that He's shown. Our tendency is to think that we must live a certain way, follow certain rules, or be godly people in order to be Christ's followers. That's the teaching that it's making its way through the Corinthian congregation as Paul writes this letter, and not just there. It is the constant nagging impulse of our sinful hearts to think that we must earn the acceptance of God, transform ourselves into good people that He will approve of. The theologian Michael Horton has written that this way of thinking is humanity's most natural theology. It is the way that we think about God by default. We see the evidence of that in literally every other faith system that human beings have followed in the course of human history. It's the idea that I must behave a certain way or perform certain rites or sow good karma into the universe so that I can get good in return from God or from karma, or from the cosmos, or from my society. Every religion in the world works this way, apart from this one. Because every religion in the world, apart from this one, has its origin in human hearts and minds. In Scripture, we meet a God who does not wait for us to get our act together before He comes to us, who does not expect us to rise to His standard of holiness before He will show His kindness to us. Instead, He comes to us 
despite our flaws and our utter inability to live good and righteous lives. And turning to Him, beholding His glory and His grace and holiness, we are transformed by Him into the people that He calls us to be. It happens gradually, as we see here in this passage. Paul says we are being transformed. It's an ongoing process, a lifelong process of being made righteous through the Holy Spirit's work in the heart of a Christ follower, not through our own strength. We are renewed from the inside out. We are often tempted to get that backwards, to think according to humanity's most natural theology, When we attempt to reform our behavior rather than longing for the Lord to redeem our hearts, we are misunderstanding the gospel and setting ourselves up for failure. That's what Paul uh, fears will unfold in Corinth if this false teaching is allowed to take root there. So he explains to them that the new covenant, the gospel, the covenant of grace, produces in us what the law never could, what our effort never could. It makes us the people that God has called us to be, transformed from one degree of glory to another. The English poet William Blake once wrote that we become what we behold. He understood that something that I think all of us can see to be true in our own lives if we're paying attention, that we are shaped by what we set our eyes on, what we spend our time on, and what occupies our minds. The more time that we spend with the gospel, the more that we will become those who worship God in true and lasting joy for His providence and His mercy. Beholding the gospel will make us the people that God has called us to be. We will become those whose lives radiate His glory among all the people that We know in our relationships, in our families, in in the ways that we handle conflict, in the ways that we participate in our communities, in the way that we think about our work and how to go about it, how to go about it, and in the ways that we look for fulfillment in this life. We will be transformed into the sort of people who tell others that there is something better than humanity's most natural theology that God in His love and compassion has done for us what we could not have done for ourselves, even if we had a thousand lifetimes, and that in His mercy He atoned for our sin with His own blood in order that we might have life and freedom in His name. That is the message that Paul wants to leave with the people of Corinth. The point that he's making here is really the heart of the Christian faith and what makes the good news of the gospel truly good. One way to understand it is through a parable about a vast slum and the people who live there. In this imaginary world, there is a slum that is overcrowded and full of people living in misery and hardship. And it goes for miles and miles in every direction as far as anyone can see. It's just an ocean of need and people longing every day for a better life. And in the very center of that slum, there is a magnificent and beautiful city that's full of fruit trees and springs of fresh water and comfortable, beautiful homes. And that city is surrounded on all sides by a wall that is so high that it disappears into the clouds. All around the outside of the city walls are ropes 
and discarded ladders and other tools that people have tried to use to get over the walls and make it inside the city. But the walls are so high that no one has ever been able to get over, the, get over them and into the city, though the piles of old ladders all around the walls tell a story about how many people have tried and are still trying. Along the way, there are also holes that have been dug in the ground that people have made attempting to tunnel under the walls to get in, but the city walls are set in the bedrock, and so no one has ever made it in that way either. For years and years, countless generations, people have been trying to find a way in, but no one ever has. And then one day, the city's gate opens and a messenger comes out, and he goes about the slum announcing that Anyone who wants to come into the city will be welcome to come. The prince who rules the city has decreed that it will be open to all who wish to call it their home. They will be free to enjoy the blessings of the city, to drink from its springs, to eat of its plentiful, plentiful food, and even to dine at the prince's own table. The people, hearing this announcement, can hardly believe it. The city that they've spent their whole lives trying to get into is going to be their home. It's a message of relief and hope and promise of life, and the people can hardly contain their joy. There is only one condition, the messenger says. By order of the prince, in order to enter the city, he himself must carry you inside. And gradually, the cheers and the rejoicing fade away into silence. Some ask, how can he possibly carry all of us and the messenger simply replies, he is able. And the people say, how humiliating is this? Is he trying to shame us or make a mockery of us? And the messenger says, it is because he loves you. Others say, how do we know? How can we trust him? How do we know that he will not harm us? And the messenger says, you must trust him. And some say, quietly, I am a mess. He will not want to carry me, surely not. And the messenger says, it is his heart's greatest desire to carry you into the city, to give you a new home, and to have you sit by his side at his table. By his authority, all who come into the city will be called his sons and daughters, citizens of his kingdom and heralds of his majesty. The people consider this message. The next morning, they come back to the messenger, carrying ladders under their arms. We will find our own way in, they say. The gospel is good news because it is the answer to our deepest longing for life, for safety, for love, and for joy that our striving and our strength were never strong enough to deliver to us. It is the good news brought to us by messengers from the prince of the great and living city who demands nothing from us other than that we come to the end of ourselves and lay down our ladders and our ropes, our attempts to merit His kindness, and simply let Him carry us. Paul is pleading with these friends in Corinth. We're being told that they must build bigger ladders, dig deeper tunnels, and that if they do, they'll make it in one day. That is the ministry of death. It cannot do what the people hope that it will do. But in Christ, we have received what the author of Hebrews describes as a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the, 
covenant that Christ mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. The gospel is a promise of grace received by faith, not a promise of reward earned by effort. Therefore, the author of Hebrews says two chapters later, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, the most holy places, by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us set our hope on Christ alone, refusing to return again to the hopeless idea that we must obey in order to be accepted, and instead rejoice in the everlasting covenant of grace that brings us into God's very presence, where He transforms us into the men and women whose lives reflect the very glory revealed in His love for us. Would you pray with me? God, we pray this morning with great joy and with gospel assurance, knowing that it is not our righteousness that has brought us close to you, but your love for us despite our unrighteousness. We are sinners, rebels against you. And though our desire is to be faithful, we stumble and we fall every single day. Yet you love us and you promise us that as we set our eyes on your promise, on the gospel, on your glory, we will be raised up and transformed into faithful men and women who reflect that glory, the glory of our Savior. Do that work in us today, Lord, by setting our eyes on the gospel. Remind us of your love and the covenant of grace established by Christ. Lord, we praise you today in the name of your Son, the Prince of the Living City. Amen.